0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes good. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code TastePod. T-A-S-T-E-P-O-D, all one word, for 25% off your order.
0: I'm HRN Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're focusing on water. You'll hear some disturbing news from an NYC investigative reporter. Here lies the problem, how much we don't know about water tanks. Katie Kiefer reports on water woes in the heartland. Their water is heavily
1: polluted with nitrates, which are coming from agricultural chemical applications on fields and running off into their water table.
0: And we'll check in with Dave Arnold, who's about to open a new bar that will serve some pretty fancy H2O it is hardcore so pour up a tall glass of ice water and be refreshed by this week's episode of Meat and 3 available on heritageradionetwork.org, apple podcasts stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts
1: hi and welcome to a taste of the past i'm your host linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history and you all know the phrase, the old adage, power of the press. Well, the power of the press is never truer than when it comes to restaurant reviews. A good review can make a business. A bad review can break it. But when did all this start? When, when were these restaurant critics so heralded that people rushed to get them hot off the press and read the news? Well, Grimaud de la Reynière is credited with being the first restaurant reviewer and critic, and that was in the early 1800s, about 1803. He really um, originated sort of the double genre of food critic and restaurant guide, and a lot there were a lot of restaurant guides tell you where to go and eat, but not really an objective review. Later on, in the early, still in the early 1800s, um, Larenier he he sort of established the idea that the consuming public really wanted guidance from an authoritative judge, and that played out for quite a few years. In fact, a couple, I mean, a century and a half. Soon after Delmonico's opened in 1835, the first fine dining restaurant in in the United States, actually in New York City, for sure. And before you knew it, there were restaurant reviewers popping up with as many new restaurants that popped up. My guest today knows a thing or two about restaurant reviews and the power of the press. Mimi Sheraton was the New York Times food reviewer from 1976 to 1983, And before that, she was a pioneering food writer and a former restaurant critic at the Village Voice and wrote for Condé Nast Traveler. And when she left the Times in 83, Mimi went on to serve as food critic and reporter for Time magazine and spent three weeks in China doing a major food event. She also traveled for Condé Nast Traveler around the world and flew business class, as she said. Her writing on food and travel has appeared in such magazines as The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Smithsonian, Vogue, Town and Country, New York, Food and Wine, the list goes on. You name it, she's been published in those, her reviews and, and articles have been published. That She has written 16 books, including The German Cookbook, which was written in 1965 and has never been out of print. That's pretty remarkable right there. And a memoir, Eating My Words, An Appetite for Life. She has won James Beard Awards, IACP Awards for her books. And her most recent book is, not was, is A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die, which is a must read. We'll talk more about that later. But as Harold McGee said, on every page I learned something new. Mimi has taken cooking courses at the China Institute in New York, at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, and studied with private teachers in Copenhagen, Beirut, Phnom Penh, and Istanbul. And her articles have been published, as I mentioned, all over the place. She's lectured on food criticism, which is what we're going to talk about today, at Cornell's Hotel and Restaurant School and at the Culinary Institute of America's California campus. Mimi is a regular contributor to The Daily Beast, and I don't think she would mind my telling that Mimi is 92 years old. She's a regular contributor to The Daily Beast, and not to be outdone, she's keeping up with the times, and she is now a podcaster. She has a new podcast called, with Dan Pashman of Sporkful, called Ask Mimi. Mimi Sheridan, it is My pleasure to welcome you here today. You, I mean, you are putting many of us to shame, I have to say.
2: Well, thank you, Linda. But listening to you go through all of my background uh, made me feel very old because I've had so much time to do so many things. But I've been very, very fortunate because... Food has given me a great life with great people and great travels, and I think that's the bonus in a field such as
1: ours. Well, you are very gracious about that. Um, you, you can take us through. I mean, we know that the New York Times is the heralded, you know, uh, pinnacle of review for a restaurant. Um, there are a lot of competitors out there today. And of course, when we think of other restaurant viewers around the country, you know, you think of Jonathan Gold in LA, Irene Verbilla, who was there for many years, um, Michael Bauer out in San Francisco, uh, the late Bill Rice in, in Chicago. All of these names, it's, you know, people in the food world, I think, know the names of the restaurant reviewers more so than they do the names of some of the lead reporters for well, the news. Well,
2: th- they follow it so avidly now. Right. And, of course, it's been watered down a great deal now about all of the other uh, consumer reviews that come across. Uh, Yelp, Zagat, all of that has more or less cushioned the criticisms of the professional critics, I think.
1: Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, um, and yet, I think people who do a critical read of of reviews, you know, still go for somebody who has made that their profession. Tell me a little bit, take us a little bit through how it first when it first started, how it first started uh, in the New York Times, for instance, because that's your that's your background. Well,
2: it started in the New York Times by Craig Claiborne, uh, whose shoulders we all stand on. I really must say he mm. was very professional. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And he got really permission from the Times to do small... They were very small reviews um, every Friday. I think he was Friday. I was Friday. I don't know. Friday
1: Friday was the day for many, many years. I know that. Yeah,
2: in the weekend section, not in the food section, which is... Where I think it belongs, anyway, but that's another story. I would have yelled like mad if they put mine in the food section on Wednesday. But um, now Craig had a great deal of authority. He was very well trained. He had been to the hotel and restaurant school in Lucerne. He knew all about the cooking, and he had been working on Gourmet magazine, I believe, in Chicago, and then came to New York, and. They instituted the review. Now, there were some then. Gourmet Magazine, from its inception, had restaurant reviews, but always, always positive. And in those days, if you wanted to call the reviewer, you were connected to the advertising department, (laughs) because it was the restaurants that advertised that got the reviews. But Craig turned it around. He tried very hard and was very successful at being anonymous and not being recognized. He was fortunate in a way that he looked rather bland and fitting in. I don't mean that as not a compliment. He was very dapper and well-dressed, but he didn't stand out in that way. So he maintained anonymity as I did for many years until finally it became very difficult. But I never, like Craig, I never made a reservation in my own name.
1: But you were one of the first to actually use disguises, right? Yeah, I used wigs and glasses,
2: Mm -hmm. not clothes, but I had three different wigs. And I had a friend whose family was in the eyeglass frame business. So I had about six pairs, of course, with clear glass, because I didn't wear glasses, but different frames. And I would put it on... the wig and so on, in the cab going to the restaurant. I wouldn't even do it in the New York Times office because I didn't want anybody to know leak, what yes. they looked like. <laughs> of course, eventually, some many restaurateurs began to catch on, and there was nothing quite as embarrassing as to come in with a wig and have them say, good evening, Miss Sheraton. <laughs> you don't know whether... Cover is
1: blown. <laughs> yeah,
2: but the reviews got longer and longer, and uh, eventually became two every week. When I started, I had to do two every Friday. And uh, the Times, I think, still maintains uh, the wonderful requirement that you go at least three times. And that's excellent. And I could go many more and often did if it was complicated and inconsistent. Right. Now, Craig started this, it was the late 50s, right?
1: About 57. Yeah,
2: I would say that it was about... Fifty-seven, fifty-eight. Mm-hmm. At that time, I was doing a lot of consulting to Restaurant Associates on the opening of the Four Seasons, and I remember everybody in their office talking about this new critic at the Times and what will he <laughs> mean when he comes to our restaurants. And so, did
1: you ever know that you'd be taking
2: that place? <laughs> I certainly wanted to, and when ah. he left, there were three critics between Craig and me, and when he left, it became known that they wanted a man to replace him. They didn't interview any women. And uh, several executives at the time speaking to restaurateurs, oh, we want a man, including the woman who was the editor of that section and was a big feminist. And there were three men between Craig and me. And by that time, I had been writing for New York Magazine a couple of years. And the editor, Joan Whitman, called me and said we have an opening, we'd like you to come over. But it wasn't for the critic uh, at the time. They said, when John Cannaday leaves, you will have the job. Mm. So I wrote about food. It was about six months. And I I was there until 1984. So from 76 to 84, I was the critic.
1: Yeah, you think about that, that there were, I mean, well, Irene Verbilla, he, she was writing in L.A. In L.A. Early mm-hmm. on. But there are very few, very few leads. Phyllis Richmond. Ah, Phyllis Richman, At
2: the right. Washington Post. Right. And, of course, Gail Green was already at New York Magazine mm-hmm. by the time I got to the Times. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Irene was already there, but I think. do remember Phyllis yeah.
1: Richmond was one of the earliest. Well... It said that Craig Claiborne single-handedly created the vocabulary of food criticism and the four-star rating system.
2: Yes. The well, ra- I'm, I'm not sure about vocabulary, but certainly the parameters and the uh, the little box that, you know, what does the rating mean and, and so on. I added to that by adding recommended dishes, yes. which are now Excellent. in the box. That's but, right. But I... Added that to it because people really like to be told if they're see. I wrote not for the food world, I wrote for the pe- in my mind for the people who came in the bridge and tunnel crown c- crowd who came in on a Saturday night to celebrate someone. That's who I really wanted to be able to get what I meant. The food people will understand and they'll read it, but I tried to make the. Um, the unusual experience as familiar as possible because it can be awkward to walk into a f- fancy restaurant like Le Cirque on a Saturday yeah. night to celebrate your birthday. And, and not I want, know what
1: to expect, right? Yeah, and I yeah.
2: wanted them to know what to expect.
1: Well, you, I mean, and and you followed that very well. I mean, I, I, was, I was an avid follower. I know. I, <laughs> I rushed to the Times every Friday to read those reviews. Um, and, and along with Craig, you continued that, and Gail Green as well, building that foundation of professionalism, which I think it was, as you mentioned, it's so important. Um, and then it's been said that you and Gail Green, he, 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 made, he formed the foundation, and you and Gail kind of gussied it up a bit. Now, I don't know what... <laughs> she well, gussied more than I did. She was very gussy,
2: and she had an audience for she it. She She was very successful. I did a much cooler kind of thing. I didn't gussy it up.
1: Well, in that in the in the foundation of professionalism, what do you feel you've now you just described that you wanted those people to get it. You didn't want them to walk into an unknown situation. What do you feel is the role or the responsibility of a restu- of a you know, a quality restaurant reviewer?
2: Well, I think to do what we were talking about to tell the reader what to expect, to guide the reader to the good dishes to try to warn them off the bad dishes to describe the surroundings Um, more for women who always want to know what shall I wear
1: right
2: (laughs) it's a little less important now because everybody wears any old thing or any fancy thing to to any place Um, and uh, what the service will be like and If there's anything peculiar about the facilities, you maybe want to tell them that. I think the Times does that very well now with wheelchair access Mm -hmm. and bathroom access, Mm -hmm. and um, you want to be very candid uh, about what you like and what you don't like.
1: And there's also the the price point range. You you always give that. Well,
2: what the what the text says in the Times, it's the I believe it still says the reviewers evaluation in relation to price. In other words, at a certain low price, you might forgive a few lapses, mm-hmm. but at a very high price, you forgive nothing.
1: You better expect, so, you uh, better expect uh, the worst. But works. you made right. that
2: <laughs> very clear. I tried to make it very, very clear that right. where the value was. It was a question of value. Of well, great and deal. I have
1: a question about that because um, you, we talked about... Um, Craig and you, you know, building up that, that star system. Of course, the Michelin guide always gave stars.
2: That's the model. That yeah. was obviously the model. Anonymous guides going in and giving stars. Now, there are reviewers who feel they do not like to give a rating. But, uh, and I thought about it for a long time, but I thought the star rating was a very good thing for me to decide how I really came down on a place. And it was very good for restaurants in promoting it, and the public loved it. So uh-huh. all together, it made it a good idea
1: well, to have stars. And I mentioned the 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 guide Michelin. Um, they didn't. Out, they never reviewed American restaurants until um, just several years ago, recently. Right, but it was right. only it was only European. First, it was only French, and then it was. They're you know, only European.
2: useful in France.
1: Yeah. I feel. Huh.
2: I feel the Guide Michelin in Italy can be a disaster. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. then there's Gomio. They that came right. about as well. Right. Right. But again, for American restaurants, uh, American reviewers, I think the the newspapers initially, those newspaper um, food critics were the the word. Well, I think they're still the
2: most powerful for an immediate reaction. I mean, if you're a national magazine, such as Gourmet used to be, they did restaurant criticism. But as Andre Soltner of test told me once, the impact from New York Times and to a slightly lesser extent New York Magazine is immediate. But Gourmet can go on for years. Someone can come in who read about you in Gourmet a year and a half ago, and this is the first time they've come to New York. And so it had a longer-lasting
1: impact. That's true. And I always think of Gourmet as being more of an international travel guide restaurant. Yeah, review, but they had you know, very so
2: serious. For a while, it yeah. was Jonathan Gold under right. Ruth Reichel right. and uh, so on. Yeah.
1: Well, and the star rating, what's, what I'd like to you know, talk about, how what how you've seen restaurants change and can the same star system apply, let's say, to a, um, you want to go a very popular restaurant, but it's more of a, a joint. And can the same star system sure. apply to that?
2: Yeah, how well does it do what it is supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Not in, you don't, I once, I gave four stars to Hatsuhana when it opened up in New York. And the French and Italian restaurateurs went crazy. How could she give four stars to a <laughs> Japanese, not even one of us? You know?
1: <laughs> well, and that was a thing. I mean, it was perfect.
2: It looked perfect. Was, it the was. Service, bea- it was beautiful. The, and serious Japanese people I know here still go to Hatsuhana yeah. for the real McCoy. You know, no, no fooling. Yeah. But um, And I gave four stars to Vienna 79, and that was an awesome. Austrian restaurant. And again, you know, and the French weren't really so sure that the Italians would deserve it. They thought only a French restaurant could get four stars. Fortunately, that is no longer true. You have to be very good at what you say
1: you are. Interesting. Yeah, because back in the day, fine dining was, was, Synonymous with French cuisine. That's right. Even yeah. if the people
2: were Swiss or German or Italian, I mean, uh, a chef would adopt a French name. <laughs> now, of course, one of, the, one of the great, I think, results of the, the mid-70s and so on were the respect for American chefs uh, and, and higher quality people going in for it and being professional I mean, uh, uh, Dan Rose of Le Cuckoo made his name in Paris that's at a right. restaurant oh. called Spring, an American in Paris making a reputation for a restaurant.
1: Unheard of, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really something. Uh, now, you mentioned that the importance of, of anonymity. Tell us why, why was it so important to remain anonymous? Because you don't
2: want special service and you don't want special preparation of food. And I once wrote an article for Vanity Fair on um, what a restaurateur could do when he knew the critic. Mm -hmm. Because people used to say, well, if you come in unannounced and you're suddenly there, what can they do? They can do a lot. And I went through, you know, how they seat you, how they talk to you. They may redo your steak if you ordered it rare and it came out a little too well done. I wrote this whole article and then I had a call from Adi Giovanetti, a very fine restaurateur who had the restaurant Il Nido, uh, among others. And he said, Signora, you don't know the half of it. We can do much more than that. If you order an appetizer, we have plenty of time to play with your main course. And um, there are many critics who say it's not important. Because they can't afford to pay, they work for publications that don't pay and accept free meals. And now I don't think there's a newspaper around that would
1: allow that to happen. Well, that's something interesting to mention that that you paid your check. I mean, you were reimbursed by the newspaper, but, of course, but you were not not allowed to accept any
2: nothing. Freebies. I was once at a restaurant in Shan Yil, uh La Maloise, I think it was called, in Shanyi. And somehow they knew, I, I know how they knew, but they did know uh, that I was there. And we were four people, and they said there's no check. And we said, we have to have a check, mm. and no check. And finally, we uh, left a pile of cash. All four of us put our money. <laughs> I did, We didn't want to use a credit card, because they could just not put it in. Right. You know, d- so we left this big pile of cash in the center of the table <laughs> and left. Oh, that's,
1: that's really a good story. It was a good, <laughs> a good restaurant. A good yeah. They made
2: wonderful au <laughs> which is something I love. Eggs poached in red wine. <laughs> mm.
1: what, um, what major changes have you seen over the years in, in restaurants? Well, certainly in
2: less formality, certainly in a lot of new restaurants that don't take reservations, certainly in crowded rooms, certainly in noise. And another thing Andre Soltner pointed out to me, many restaurateurs now want their initial money back in a much shorter time than the older used to. I don't remember the exact number, but for example, let's say, we expected our money back in 10 years. Now they want their money back in three years. So there's a big initial push to do something major in the way of publicity so that people come right away, and many fold. I mean, they come and go. Uh, You know, if a new restaurant opens in a place, you can usually mean that an old restaurant closed in that place. That's right. But there's now... a. An unpleasant change in New York, especially in my neighborhood, maybe yours too, I live in the West Village, and many of what I consider pleasantly serviceable restaurants, very nice food, not dirt cheap, but moderately priced, where you might go two or three times a week if you lived there and didn't feel like cooking, those are closing Mm -hmm. because they do not cook at a level that would justify the new price they have to charge, not only rent, but they have to pay all of the reservation that. services right. Yelp, Open Table, right. Resi. And it's become so important at, on all sides to have food delivery that this one restaurant around the corner for me had to employ three messenger boys and pay fringe benefits, full salary, and it was just getting to the point where he would have to change his cooking to meet the price he would have to have, and though he could do it, he was close to 60 years old and feel like changing his model. So. He closed it and went off and did consulting in the business, and it's mm. it's happening all around. I'm I'm beginning to take it personally, <laughs> and the final blow was the announced closing of Lord and Taylor, which oh, is well, not a go. restaurant. <laughs> but I live downtown as you do, and that was the nearest for me. Great yeah. department store yeah. it was lovely. There was never
1: anybody yeah. in it. Rent, I mean, which... times the times are changing. Rents are rents are definitely ha- having well, an impact. Well, also but...
2: life is changing. Yes. Uh, online ordering of things has caused the demise um, of many retail. You know, you figure, oh yeah, I really want to support the store, but what the heck? I one minute Amazon has it at yeah. my door, and we know, don't have to leave our apartments. We can right. just uh, sit at home. I often don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk more about the uh, the changes in restaurant reviewing and and the effects that have has on diners when we come back after a short break. So keep those thoughts and stay I'll with us. I'll do that. I recently interviewed historian Ken Albala to talk about the history of noodles. And I was interested to learn that some of the oldest noodles that there's evidence of were made with millet. Now, that's an interesting grain that we wouldn't think of to make noodles with. But it got me thinking about one of my other favorite noodles, and that's pizzoccheri. Pizzoccheri are made, a thick, they're a thick, dense noodle made with buckwheat. And at bobsredmill.com, you can get everything you need to make these unusual types of noodles and pastas. For the pizza carry, you would add about one cup of buckwheat flour and two cups of regular flour, and then follow your regular pasta recipe. The noodles are thick, dense, usually served with cabbage or potatoes. It's a recipe from the Valtellina section of Italy. And again, Bob's Red Mill will supply you with everything you need. That's bobsredmill.com, and don't forget to add taste pod t-a-s-t-e-p-o-d for 25% off your order Hi, we're back, and sitting here in the studio with me is Mimi Sheraton, the inimitable Mimi Sheraton, who was a longtime restaurant critic for the New York Times and for many other publications, and also a very um, a very well-respected food writer in, in many regards and author. And Mimi, we were talking about... Um, well, friend, Well, restaurant reviewing started out only reviewing fine dining, and fine dining meant fancy French restaurants. But then things change. As you said, life is changing. And that would be an introduction of so many different international cuisines. How has that affected the restaurant business and reviewing?
2: Well, it's affected reviewing in that one has to become somewhat familiar with the new cuisines that come to town. I was very fortunate in having traveled the world long before I became a critic at the Times, when I wrote a book called City Portraits, which took me to 60 cities all over the world. Um, and and you, if you can't do that, if you can't taste a cuisine on its native ground, at least you study the books about it, you get an idea of what it's supposed to be. Not that authenticity is the only criterion. Uh, I don't care. I think Calvin Trillin has said, and I agree, I don't care what you call it as long as it tastes, tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, I ascribe to that. But, but you should have some idea of what the flavors are and what the style of eating is. And right now, we are happily deluged with cuisines from all over the world. Southeast Asian of all kinds is very, very big, whether in pure form or infusion. And uh, the other one coming up just all over the place is sort of North African, Middle Eastern, Israeli. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have here in New York, Memme, which is close to me, a wonderful uh, Israeli, North African, and then um and and Miznon and those restaurants in the Chelsea market, and I mean they're just, Nur is a very That's interesting, that yeah. yeah. uh, belongs to the Bread's Bakery people. And they do a lot of Israeli cooking. There's a richness about it that appeals to people right now. The Southeast Asian, uh, I think, has a great appeal to people who like sort of lightness, sort of greenery and delicate flavors, not that some of it isn't very, very hot. But it's quite wonderful. In, In 1960, when I took the trip around the world for the book and went to Thailand, among other places, there was no Thai restaurant in New York. I had no idea what it was. It all tasted like soap and citronella to me because of lemongrass and the thing. I thought, what is this
1: food? <laughs> and now every city in the country has And got after it. about
2: two weeks and talking to a lot of people there and going to a little cooking class there, I began to understand it. But it was, you know, totally from left field. Uh, and now, you know, we have Hanoi which is wonderful, and so many that do Vietnamese. And um, I went to uh, Hanoi in 2009 with the New York Philharmonic, because Alan Gilbert, who was then the music director, had become a friend because of an association I had with fundraising dinners at the Philharmonic. And he told me when he was in Hanoi with them playing. He was going to eat pho all over the place. And I said, if I can get an assignment, can I come and write about it? And Smithsonian bought it. And I went to Hanoi and we ate street food with all the uh, philharmonic kids, you know, who mm-hmm. ran. It was just a wonderful way to suddenly get a blasting education on pho.
1: <laughs> so... Um, and now, look, I mean, it, it, the... Well... Immigrants all over right. the the country right. you know, are enriching our lives as far as the... I hope they can food. stay here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't go to a city that doesn't have a, a Thai restaurant, That's for sure. Right. If right. not, you know, pho and you all these other sushi. things. sushi. If yeah.
2: anyone had asked me, or anyone had suggested to me in 75 or 76 that Americans would t- really take to eating raw fish, I would have told them they were crazy, hmm. And, and look at us now. <laughs> look at
1: us now. Uh, you have um, you've seen so many different. Well, these are the new new trends that are coming. But in in the past, there's always been a fad in dining and restaurant eating. And are there any particular <laughs> fads fads that you remember that you were so happy they faded away? Well, there were uh, health fads. There were health
2: gurus like um carlton fredericks and um just went out of my mind the woman who was so famous um i'll, I'll it'll come back yeah. to me when i think of something else and we did everything they said for a while but there, there were strange things then it wasn't so much restaurants but you had to eat blackstrap molasses and you had to have yogurt and you had to take brewer's yeast. and there Brown were,
1: rice. Uh, brown <laughs> rice. And
2: there were health food restaurants in New York. I used to go to one near uh, the Hearst building because then I worked for Good Housekeeping. It was called Vim and Vigor. And they used to have these hot plates of food with baked squash and kale and spinach and the whole place would smell of it. And some of the food was so caloric. They had a, um, uh, a, str- a strawberry pureed sour cream that they put on everything Hmm. must have had a thousand calories (laughs) then we would come back we went to a health food restaurant and now of course you have in addition to health you have the sense of responsibility of trying to uh, sustain certain species and certain crops we have we want fair trade if, if their work is abroad, that they get a decent living. We want it as fresh as possible from a local market. We want it organic, though nobody really knows what that means. Mm-hmm. So, And this is very difficult for a critic. I decided once I became a critic, I could not write on those matters. Because if I really believed in those things, it would be incumbent upon me to... Judge a restaurant partly on their compliance with those concerns, and I didn't think that was fair.
1: And then you'd be eliminating so many other restaurants. Yeah, and you. I mean,
2: you know, if the spinach was good, the spinach was good, and I shouldn't say, "Well, where did you get it?" Well, now I don't like it. I just—that's not what those places were about, and so they should not be judged by that. Yeah, I, I can see the the difficulty in that. Definitely mm, yeah. creates a challenge. Yeah, right? I I don't think. Many critics now um, fault a restaurant for not being that if everything is good, although they do celebrate it if they know everything right. came locally.
1: Right. So make that be one of the attractions right, the special pride.. Right. Yeah. Um, what about um, you? Have a, a a little bit of a a gripe with some of the hot new contemporary menus.
2: Yeah. uh, I've been noticing lately, as some of the the new places get highly touted, that they all have these made-up dishes that don't come from any background, as far as I can tell, except what is hot now and what will sell. And in the end, they are all sort of alike plates with little dibs and dabs of food all over them, or uh, salad bowls full of kale, which, by the way, I hate. And I wrote my first column for the Daily Beast was about hating kale. But they have to have the buzzwords. It has to say kale. It has to say quinoa. It has to have I don't know what all the other things are at the moment, but it's you can just spot it on the menus. I agree, for the sake of business, they have to have something for vegetarians and vegans because you get a party of three or four people, and one person may be a nut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't go there. <laughs> I just went there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but, you know, Paleo, whatever you call it, Paleo. Paleo. Pal- paleo right. I, I, have a feeling they ate people. <laughs> so I don't think
1: we want to go all the way. So you feel you you want something that's that's based on um on a on a some sort of consistent some framework. Sort, right. it, it
2: doesn't have to be ethnic. You know, there there can be something in the chef's background, but. Um, I must say, uh, I've done some work recently for the major food group who have a number of currently very hot restaurants in New York, Italian, French, took over the space from the Four Seasons, and they begin from a framework of whether it's Italian or whether it's New York. And when I worked for Restaurant Associates and the famous Joe Baum uh, creating the Four Seasons and I worked on other restaurants for him, he wanted a book and a plan behind him. So he had a consistency, a kind of uh, uh, self-given authority to do what he was doing. But it, it made for a much more... Um, Original and coordinated menu, and right now all the menus—not all, but many, many—are you could be in one restaurant or another, and nothing is memorable, and everything is okay. Mm, interesting. Mm.
1: Uh, I think it's very interesting too that you that you sort of have come full circle that you you helped consult on the menu for the original Four Seasons, and here you are back again, (laughs) you know, consulting on the Four Seasons and their new iteration. There's there's no room in New York
2: that has more memories for me than the Barn grill of what was the Four Seasons. I've seen it with BX cable and concrete blocks and, you know, grow to be that very beautiful space, which fortunately it still is because it's landmarked and they can't change anything attached to the walls, so...
1: Do you have any just as we, as we kind of wind up here, um, any best experiences, worst experiences, anything that you're sad to? You did. I actually, I I do recall an article you wrote. Um, something that you were a little you regret to see some of some things fading away and going away um, in your in your vast experience of of restaurant reviewing. Anything interesting that would come up as a story? Well, there
2: are particular types of restaurants that have gone away that I regret, and I would say the old New York Seafood House. Uh, fish and seafood restaurants that would have every kind of fish done every kind of way, but they were serious about fish. There, I mean, the Oyster Barn, Grand Central, is a little that way. Aqua Grill is a little that way. At a much higher, uh, more innovative uh, way, the pool at the at well, was the Four Seasons is that, but nothing like Gloucester House, Seafair of the Aegean, and these great places where you could go in and have any. But a rea- really fish, done for fish, not for gussying it up.
1: Do you think um, the fine, as we talked about a couple times, of the, the fine dining, be they French or whatever, those 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 fine dining establishments, and they were primarily French, that were, that were major establishments, and I think every city around the country.